Um, so <clears throat> it's 4th of July. Uh, it's Bend. There's a pet parade uh, going on. And so leading up to this week, my thought was, uh, boy, that needs to be quick, high energy service sermon. Need to bust out the jokes and everybody needs to laugh and have a good time. And then we're going to all go have a picnic. And that way everyone will feel like we just had this wonderful July 4th kind of service and experience. <clears throat> and then yesterday I was in the Willamette Valley and I was kind of just meditating and praying and looking out um, at the hills and stuff like that. And all of a sudden realized that I was becoming or about to become the thing I vowed I would never become. Um, I mean, I realized in, in some sense I was about to sell out. Uh, and that freaked me out. So, so yesterday I kind of went back to the drawing board. And, and so uh, there will be no jokes. Nobody will laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, maybe it's going to be a little rowdy and maybe I can get away with it because you guys are the true church that are here and not at the pet parade. <laughs> and, and so maybe you guys... Um, can hang with me, and, and that'll be cool. Last summer, we had an intern here named Micah. Micah was really cool, became a really good friend. Uh, he's from Long Beach. He was up at Moody, and he came here for the summer. He was an artist. Uh, he rapped. Um, but if you've never heard his spoken word pieces, they're pretty amazing. He wrote one last summer called One America Dies, uh, and it wasn't anti-American at all. It was very measured and just talking about the true nature of freedom, especially from a spiritual perspective. But he wrote this spoken word piece, and he spoke it uh, on 4th of July at a party last year and about got ran out um, by a bunch of people that thought he was being unpatriotic. Um, and so I've got a lot of big brother emotion going on because I'm kind of thinking about it again, and it really bothered me. And, and so in some sense... Um, just sticking up for Micah. So this sermon's called In Defense of Micah. Um, so there you have it. Um, I want to start with the U.S. Declaration of Independence. I've got a little picture of it up for you uh, on the screen. But the U.S. Declaration of Independence starts this way, if I can find it. says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not the conclusion statement to the declaration, like most people think. It actually is part of the intro. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's clear, it's common sense that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that cannot be separated from their personhood, rights that, that are intrinsic to what it, it is to be human, that the imago Dei, the image of God that is in every man and every woman, okay, cannot be separated, they cannot be objectified and their rights removed from them, they go together. And so what happened is they're writing this Declaration of Independence, our forefathers are, because 
they were here and they were being ruled by a leader across the ocean who was demanding certain things of them that violated those rights. That violated those rights. Now the interesting thing that comes up, so rights becomes the language, human rights, natural rights. But what we don't often recognize is that the bigger part of that conversation, in some sense, was responsibilities. You see, you can't have human rights without human responsibilities. I have a right that you cannot deprive me of my life. Okay, I could list a whole bunch of things. But therefore, you have a responsibility. You owe it to me, just like I owe it to you, not to violate that right. And so those two things exist together, that because you have rights and I have rights and people halfway across the world have rights and people in Asia and Africa have rights, even though we think their lives are worth less money, um, those rights mean that we have responsibilities one to another. And the king, the leader who was in charge of America, who was over America at that point in time, George, had responsibilities to those people because they had rights. So let's look at the Declaration a little bit differently. You'll see highlighted all the spots that talk about how George failed in his responsibilities. Did you guys know that the bulk of the Declaration of Independence is listing the charges against King George? It's not a long discourse about rights with eloquent language. It's actually the bulk of it, outside of the intro and and the conclusion, is listing charges against George for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. George, you have failed in your responsibility to uphold our rights. And because you're not upholding our rights, we can now sever the relationship with you. So what we have to understand is when we're talking about the Declaration of Independence, we have to really understand this notion of responsibility. That there was a failure of responsibility and that, that that's not okay because people do have rights. And because of that failure of responsibility, we were in some sense able to cut the tie with England, fight a war where people die, and emancipate ourselves. Do you guys get that? Okay. Look at the percentage of that that has to do with responsibilities. I want to fast forward now to present day. So if we turn this into a Christmas package, lots of them, Christmas tree, does that look like Christmas tree, kind of, and this now are people 
who are the have-nots. And we have become the richest, most affluent people the world has ever known. Even in your bankruptcy, even in losing your home, we are the most affluent people the world has ever known, even in this economy. We have all of this, and the have-nots are saying, help us. We, we need help. We, we don't have the resources. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the necessary things to keep our kids alive, to emancipate ourselves from certain situations, to get justice, to have the things that are unalienable rights. And they are, in some sense, pleading and asking for something from us because we have the power, we have the means, we have the capacity, we have the wealth. And you know what we say? No. Because I have rights. My money is my money. You don't have a right to take my money. You know what? You were afforded the same opportunity I was. I I was the son of an immigrant. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. And, and, uh, you know, you get your hands off of my money and you deal with your own problems. Um, We use the same language to insulate ourselves from the cry of the oppressed. I have rights. I have choice. This stuff is mine. The amazing thing about rights, especially when you look at Jesus, is Jesus never came to defend the rights of the wealthy and the powerful. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up at the beginning, the inauguration of his ministry. He's 30 years old. He's been around a long time. He's lived a lot of life. A lot of people know him. But now he's going to inaugurate his ministry. And he stands up and he opens to Isaiah 61. And he looks people dead in the eye. And he reads Isaiah 61 in relationship to himself and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. That means God is blessing me. He is going with me. This is his calling. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came for the have-nots. And what we lose in America where we're so focused on human rights. No, this isn't in the sermon notes, but it's cool stuff. It's actually not cool stuff. It's very unpatriotic. So maybe it's not. Anyways, when Eleanor Roosevelt was chairing the committee after World War II when the UN was formed and then there was a committee 
to draft a universal declaration of human rights, and she chaired that committee. Her husband had died. Truman had, had put her forward. She had a lot of credibility globally. And when she chaired this committee, we came from a tradition in the West, in America, where we were really focused on rights. Thomas Paine, that helped birth our whole revolution, wrote the book, The Rights of Man, which also played into, significantly into the French Revolution. But we were really into rights. And so in our, in our kind of committee that was sent, that was lobbying for what should be in that Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we wanted a lot of individual rights and, and free speech rights and these kinds of things. And we looked at the Soviets and we said, you guys um, don't get it because you don't have these rights. You want to know what the Soviets said back? What the communists said back? You guys are hypocrites. You have Jim Crow laws in the South. People that get lynched and you don't even prosecute it. You have segregation in the South and you're talking about us and, and giving rights to people. You guys are hypocritical. And you know what those from the third world or the developing world said to both the U.S. and the Soviet Union? You guys are hypocrites. Because you want to put national sovereignty above human rights. So that when it's in your country, you can do whatever you want, even deny human rights, um, because it's national sovereignty. And nobody can tell you. That's why it took literally 30, 40 years for an international um, human rights tribunal court to be set up. And I think even to this day, America hasn't ratified it or, or recognized it. Because we don't want anyone making decisions that would affect our people, that affects our national sovereignty. But coming out of World War II, the whole idea was that a country like Germany couldn't claim national sovereignty and hide behind that while they were denying human rights. So the third world looked at both of us on that committee and said, you guys are hypocrites. Um, anyways... We're so rights-driven in America, we're not necessarily responsibility-driven. But remember, that was the whole pretext for asserting our rights, was that responsibilities matter. And so Jesus comes and he says, man... God's Spirit is with me, and He's commissioned me to go and proclaim, to go be the Messiah, to set the captives free. And we are over here, and we sit behind our TVs, and we think to ourselves, if only there, was more, if only there were more Democrats in this country, we'd be a better country. Or if only there were more Republicans in this country, we'd, we'd be a better country. We really think that if we could get the voting block to go our direction, it would fix the ills. And we sit there passively thinking that, 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 that nationalism or patriotism is what's going to fix, in some sense, and make America righteous. But righteousness is what exalts a nation, says Proverbs 14. Not Republicans, not Democrats, but righteousness itself, truth that is not an American thing, but it's something that comes from the Creator. 
It's us acting in line with the way God created things to be. And when we act in line with that, with rights and responsibilities, righteousness exalts a nation. It's not the politics or the political mechanisms that save society. It's Christ liberating us and reconciling us to God so that we could then go and reconcile others to God, be given this ministry of reconciliation, Paul calls it, where we knit it all back together in justice. And so we look at this and we have and others have not and we say it's our right to have and you don't have the right to take and we have this kind of battle going on and then God is up here looking at this. His perspective is, a, is, is just like a, parent, a parent's perspective looking at two parties or, or two kids or two groups and sizing it up and what does a parent say? You saying the word mine grates on me. There's an inequity here. And the more righteous thing for you to do, to feel, to say, to think, would be to take your excess or your, your toy or whatever it is and to share it with the person or the child or whatever that doesn't have it. To bless that person, to give, to be generous, to be sacrificial, to love, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. To, in some sense, live out this responsibility so that we can all have dignity, worth, and value. Recognizing the reason you have that toy is because you were born into a family that had the means to buy you that toy. Not because there's anything about you more valuable than this other child. I mean, the parent, we size that up and it grates on us and we, we, we want to teach and mature and grow this child so that there's equity there. And God looks at us and he looks at the world. There's more slaves today, today than there ever has been in the history of the world. And a million of them a year are sex slaves that are trafficked. And if you're a dad with daughters and you really get into thinking what's going on there, God hears those cries. God sees those tears. That matters more to him than some of the prayers that we're praying. Why do our prayers not get answered? Because in some sense, we're here, the poor are here, and we are asking God to bless us, and God is saying, you don't even understand what your life should be about. You haven't yet been conformed into my image, because if you had been, your priorities, your values, your desires would be so radically different. And you would be laboring on behalf of the poor, standing up for the oppressed, welcoming the stranger, and you would be asking me to aid you in that, and I would gladly do it. Do you know the funny thing about the end of the book of Matthew is when it says, go and make disciples and teach them all these things, and, and I will be with you even to the end of the age, that that, that promise that, that, that 
God would be with, that Christ would be with, that the power in some sense would be with, that we take that as an unconditional promise. Very American of us. Whatever I do, no matter how materialistic I am, I can always count on um, Jesus following me around like a puppy dog because he promised he would. He'd be with me always. And we have no idea that 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 is a very sacred promise that comes in a tradition starting all the way back in in the beginning of Scripture with Abraham and moving on. And you see it with Moses. And he calls Moses to go liberate the people. And Moses is so scared that he's like saying no to God. And God finally gets Moses to say yes. He says, guess what, Moses? I'll go with you. My power will go with you. You just got to walk in faith and I will clear the way. And then Joshua gets commissioned kind of along the same lines. You're going to finish what I started with Moses. And don't be afraid, Joshua, in the beginning of Joshua. Fear not, because I'll go with you. If you do what I ask you to do, if you go on mission for me, I will send my power with you. I'll I'll go with you. And and then Jesus invokes this and he says, "The, the spirit of God is upon me. And he's commissioned me to go proclaim. And so I go in the name of God, in the power of God. And then Jesus is going to leave and he has these disciples and he commissions them and he says, do what I have done. Go where I've called you to go and I'll go with you. So radically different than this idea of I'm a Christian and if I just show up at a Bible study, Jesus will be there and and Jesus is kind of always there with me and I can always count on it. That promise of the presence of God is so radical. And when we live out our calling and we don't cling to rights, but we become servants of God, we, Romans 12, it says this, we present ourselves as living sacrifices. Do you guys understand that picture? It's one of the most powerful metaphors in scripture to me. Sacrifices don't live. It's actually really bloody, messy thing. The dads would come and take their oldest sons and have them hold their hand and take a knife and slit the throat of a lamb until it bled out. And then that lamb would be taken and, and ultimately, after it was dressed, put on a a big altar with fire and it would be burnt, charred. I mean, just think of the aroma, think of the imagery, think of the sounds, think of the smells. Sacrifices don't live. Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. You take yourself, you put it on the altar it's the best, the best thing you can give God is yourself. You put it on the altar, offering it up to God. And instead of it being burnt that way, instead of it, 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 you dying in some sense, you walk off the other side of the altar as a living sacrifice. Every bit of you belonging to God. Instead of this thing being consumed by fire, it's now, in some sense, wholly committed and wholly submitted to God's purposes. It belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. That is, Paul says, your spiritual act of worship. Singing songs is a great tool for worship. 
Worship itself is submitting yourself 100% to God, saying, I am yours, God. All the Christmas presents I have are yours, God. All of the freedom and the luxury and the liberty and the leisure that I enjoy is yours, God. How would you, I'm, I'm, I'm a living sacrifice, I'm a bond servant, I, I serve you. How would you want me to utilize those things, God? And God will say, I know how I want you to utilize those. It's what I sent my son for. It's what he commissioned his whole ministry with. It is Isaiah 61. It is working and laboring on behalf of the have-nots. It's pouring yourself out daily. It is, it is draining yourself. It is not making life revolve around you. It is not about claiming rights. It's about giving rights away so that others might have life. It's doing what Jesus did for us. You know, Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if you think of a 13-year-old girl held under lock and key as a sex slave in India. She cannot liberate herself. I mean, the whole idea of what God did in sending Christ was a, a picture of, of working on behalf of others and doing for them what they could not do for themselves. God saved us spiritually while we were dead in our sins. And if we don't understand that initiative of love, that, that love is something that, that fights and labors and seeks and goes out, then we don't really understand the gospel. Jesus talked to the group of Pharisees and he was talking to them about love and they were like, sweet, love. Family, friends, got it. I'm good. I throw good parties. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Love is bigger than that. Love is oh so much bigger than that. You love the untouchables. You love your neighbor, your neighbor in Lapine, and your neighbor in India who has no advocate and has no help. You love your neighbor because you are all equal. You've been all created equal with unalienable rights and if those rights of other people are being so stepped on and you have the capacity to do something about it then you have a responsibility to do something about it says love there's a story from Paris 1919 that, that really stuck in my mind World War One ended and the treaty was worked out at Versailles, if you remember, in, in the summer of 1919. Woodrow Wilson traveled by boat, didn't have tran transatlantic flights back then, traveled by boat, went over there. And he went over there with these 14 points and this idea of a League of Nations that was his, his baby. Wanted this League of Nations to kind of be this global government to help keep these things from happening again, ethnic divisions. World War I, like World War II, had so many little ethnic minority um, things tied up in it, in the Balkans and whatnot. He chaired a committee on drafting some of the formative documents of the League of Nations. And 
they brought into it that there would be rights. And the third world nations said, we want, because the funny thing was, was the rights only pertained to white people. And they wanted the language to say that there was equality of race. Equality of race. Woodrow Wilson uh, tried to pass it over. They demanded a vote. So it went to a vote. We have the transcripts of it. The vote was 17 to 11 in favor of, of saying that there is, there is equality of race. Woodrow Wilson quickly commented that the resolution had failed. The Japanese delegate jumps up and says, what do you mean failed? It was 17 to 11. And Woodrow Wilson says, well, it wasn't unanimous. And the Japanese delegate jumps up again and says, when did we decide that there had to be a unanimous vote on these things? And Woodrow Wilson says, this is far too important. So the, the motion, I, I used my powers as chair of the committee to say that this hasn't passed, tabled it, and moved the meeting on. Why? Because the other superpowers had colonies. And if there was equality of race, it would violate, it would put into legal violation their, the idea of colonization. Not only that, but the South in America meant that America was really divided on this issue. And Woodrow Wilson really cared about the League of Nations, and he knew that if it gets too controversial, when I go back to Congress, and if it has that language in there, Congress will say, we don't want to play, and they'll vote down the treaty. And so he was playing, in some sense, a game of politics. And the funny thing is, is he gets on the boat, he comes back, and what happens anyways? Congress shot it down anyways. You want to know why um, the United Nations is in New York? One of the the main reasons why the United Nations is in New York? Because everyone in the world knew that if we were going to make it work this time, that the United States had to to ratify it and buy in because we didn't buy into the League of Nations. So they put it in New York. Figure if they let Americans own it, maybe they'll play, you know. Um, But how do we, who have in our Declaration of Independence that there are unalienable rights, in a meeting like that where we're talking about rights of race, say no, We're separating those rights from you in India, in Africa, in Asia. We are alienating you from your unalienable rights. And what that shows me, why that always stuck with me was this. How do we acclimate to using certain rights like national sovereignty, to shout down justice and responsibility? Or how do we use pragmatism or (laughs) being political? How do we use that to shout down justice and responsibility when our whole country in some sense is predicated 
on rights and responsibilities. As Christians, so much more so. How do we acclimate ourselves to using rights to shout down justice and responsibility? I think it's really easy for us to become, just like it's easy to become uber-patriotic and uber-nationalistic, yet never lift a finger to help other people who are not free. And we really don't understand the meaning of freedom at that point. We're just enjoying its benefits like immature children and hiding under a banner of national pride. We hide our materialism and our selfishness often under a banner of national pride. In patriotism. Do you, guys, do you guys realize that? In the Christian church, we hide our responsibility to love our debts as Romans, our continuing debt to love others. We hide that often under the banner of conservative evangelicalism or conservatism or you name it. We get so in our little tribe and we get our identity wrapped up with our tribe and we fight for the borders of our tribe to define it against other tribes. And in becoming really tight, just like with nationalism, we develop a sense of group identity and pride. And that pride is a false sense of righteousness. Pride at its root is a substitute, a cheap substitute. It's stevia. It's, it's a cheap substitute for, for righteousness. It's stevia spirituality. Do you guys understand how we can emotionally, into the depths of our being, feel that we're big, yet be so small because we lack righteousness and we lack love. The Pharisees were Jesus' whole definition for this. He says, you guys are so proud of yourselves, yet you don't lift a finger to help others. You think you have all these rights because you're spiritual or because you're leaders or because you know it all or because you... Ah. But you don't even do what the law requires. You don't even love. You don't even lift a finger. You don't even see it, much less. And so pride is such a cheap substitute for righteousness. And this Christian church culture we're in, we can get so passive, yet feel so big. Do you understand how crazy that sounds, I think, from a God perspective? For us to be so passive, inert, and worthless, yet to think we are of such value? It's, it's this subtle little thing we can do. How do we separate ourselves from justice and our responsibilities so easily? It's subtle. And it happens over time. And we begin to take pride in these group things. And just like there's this irony, ridiculous irony in Woodrow Wilson in 1919, there's a ridiculous irony of the American church and of American Christians being more concerned with our perceived lack and holding on to our perceived rights way beyond our understanding of the call that we've got to co-labor with Christ in this ministry of reconciliation and love. So how does that really work out for a bunch of people in, in Bend, Oregon? 
mean, seriously, if we really would radically embrace love, what would that look like? It would mean that we have to give a lot of money to this church even. We have to staff people that can help lead us and organize us. A bunch of random people unorganized don't go change the world. It takes people that have the time set aside to be able to put their 40 hours a week into organizing and channeling and maximizing effort. We've got to hire staff. We've got to work hard. We've got to learn to be wise. You know what's worse than not having compassion sometimes is compassion without wisdom, which is a, a real problem in America. Because we'll throw money at things to appease our guilt. But what we don't realize is the money we're throwing at problems sometimes, oftentimes, make the problems worse. So we have to invest time and energy into learning and growing and becoming wise. A little group in Bend, Oregon also can't think that we're the only thing and change the world. We have to like have alliances and partnerships and find win-win relationships and collaborate because world relief, for an example, is already in countries that would take us 65 years to build those relationships with. And so we begin to realize it's not just about us, that there's others out there and, and we come alongside and we unite with them and we, we labor that way. But if we're really going to join this, there's a lot of hard work. And that's, that's, that's really the rub, isn't it? A lot of resources and a lot of work. Following Christ is so difficult, you could almost say it costs you your life. Does anyone here want to challenge that statement and say it's untrue? And if it is true, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're perverting something if we settle into and get comfortable with something less than the call of Christ demands from us. Instead of thinking in terms of rights and entitlement and victim mentality, which is so easy for us to do. We need to learn to think a little bit more in terms of our responsibility. It's not just our friends and family, it's our neighbor too. It's not just here locally, it's definitely also here locally, but it's also abroad, people we've never met. You know, Paul took money from Greek churches and sent it all the way around the world at that point in time to Jerusalem where there was a famine. It'd be no different than us sending money to Congo or Sudan. Halfway around the world for us, in our day and age, because there's brothers and sisters in Christ that don't have food. Justice is not some weird liberal concept. It's a part of the fabric built into this world that God created. It began the day God put his image in us. Justice is not some Glenn Beck socially charged concept. Real justice, biblical justice, which includes certain kinds of social justice, 
is, is a part of the DNA of this world. And it's in Scripture. It's in Paul sending money around the world for famine victims. And we could continue on and on and on, but it's not a foreign concept. It's not something we've created. The hippies didn't bring it. Okay? It's, it's a part of what love seeks to do when it's really turned loose and assertive. So my buddy Micah took and wrote a piece called When America Dies. It wasn't anti-American at all. Read it last 4th of July. Caused such an uproar by some older right-leaning individuals that one of them even yelled they'd buy him a plane ticket to send him to whatever country he wanted to live in because he didn't deserve to live here. We hold on to our patriotism really strongly. We take pride really strongly. But as Christians, we have to say, there's a blessing that comes from living here. I'm the son of an immigrant. There is an amazing blessing to America, a privilege that, that I've had that people in this world don't have. And if I don't take it for granted, the person I give thanks to is not Thomas Jefferson, but to God. And I give him the glory and I give him the thanks and I humbly pray and ask that he maintains the liberty of this land. But the question he asks me is, if I keep freedom alive for you, Ken, how are you going to use it? Freedom is a biblical thing. We were called to be free. But freedom is not something that just is a materialistic tool for us to just get whatever we want to indulge and to gluttonize. It's a resource. It's an opportunity to serve others in love according to the demands of a full understanding of justice. Do you want me to read all of Micah's document, which would take a little bit longer, or do you just want me to read the excerpts I marked? All right, then you guys all have to tell Linda that if we go late, that it's your fault. I felt really bad for Mike last year because, you know, I think after that night he really wondered if he'd done something wrong and offended people and damaged relationships. And I, I took a little bit of ownership because he wrote part of this off of something I had told him when he first moved here. And I said, the more I learn about history, the less patriotic I become. Now hear me now. Not the less grateful I become. The less patriotic I become, recognizing that there are flaws in America just like there's strengths. And if we really are good people, if Americans are really good people, then we can admit to those flaws and try and become better people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Not just think we're the greatest thing since sliced bread and that nothing we've ever done smells bad. But I, I gave him a line and he said, someone once told me, the more I study history, the harder it is to be a patriot. America the beautiful, built on biblical principles in the backs of slaves, manifesting our destiny from New England to the California coast, desecrating most native civilizations that got in our way. Now don't get me wrong, I'm no Afrocentric conspiracy theorist with a slavery chip on my back. In fact, I'm proud to be an American. 
I love running water and Mickey D's, religious freedom and democracy, but recently I've asked myself, what does it mean to be free? As natives of the U.S., liberty is ingrained in our Constitution and DNA. But if your freedom is married to your American rights, will you still be free when America dies? And America will die. No, I'm no prophet predicting the future. I'm a historian observing the past. From Egypt to Babylon, the Greeks to the Romans, in their moments they felt invincible. And little did they know their temples would erode, their cities would burn, and their coliseums would crumble with a roar as loud as that of the crowds which filled them before they fell to the ground. The globe continues to roll. A new empire rose, then fell, passing the torch to the next generation of fools, convinced they would eternally rule. So what makes us think we're the exception? Let me repeat my question. If your freedom is married to your American rights, will you still be free when America dies? What does it mean to be free? Bondage is a spiritual state, not physical chains. Realistically, most Americans are still enslaved, mastered by their own desires, aspiring merely to aspire higher, driven by their insatiable appetite for material wealth and physical pleasure, wondering whether their labor will ever end. Slaves in need of liberation. In need of a freedom like Silas and Paul, fastened in stocks to a Roman prison wall, yet feeling so free they sang hymns to their liberator. For our freedom is greater than shackles. If ever America is tackled by a foreign kingdom and U.S. citizens are enslaved or imprisoned, I will still have freedom. Freedom that is true, having nothing to do with a bill of rights or a politician, the Declaration of 1776 did not ensure my independence, nor did Lincoln's proclamation bring my people emancipation. True liberation comes only by salvation. Salvation comes only by faith in Christ. And until you believe that the Son of God died and resurrected so you could be free from your sin, you will never know liberation. And if you believe that the Son of God died and resurrected so you could be free from your sin. No prison cell or ball and chain can ever take your freedom away. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ had made, has made us free. And do not be entangled, entangled again with a yoke of bondage. For if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so tonight, as we cheer for our moment in time, watching millions of dollars explode in the sky, I pray you consider this question of mine. Will you still be free if America dies?